Hi everyone, welcome to Outgrow's Market of the Month. I'm your host, Dr. Saksham Sharda. I'm the creative director at Outgrow.co. And for this month, we're going to interview Hero Tien, Apurva Tornadula, and Michelle Liu, who are the co-founders at viralspace.ai. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having hey. us. Thanks for having us. All right, so we're going to start with a rapid fire round just to break the ice. Uh, each of you get three passes. In case you don't want to answer a question, you can just say pass. Uh, but try to keep your answers to one word or one sentence only, okay? Sounds all right, good. So, all right, so I'm going to start with the first question now. It's going to start with Hero. How long does it take you to get ready in the mornings? Two minutes. Okay. Apurva, next question for you. Most embarrassing moment of your life? Oh, this is a hard one. Um, <laughs> I think I forgot a speech when I was giving it um, in a presentation in college. So definitely that. Okay. Michelle, how many hours of sleep can you survive on? I like to get a good night's sleep. So I aim for eight, but maybe six to seven. Okay. Uh, back to Hero. The city in which the best kiss of your life happened. Probably Venice in Italy. <laughs> wow, romantic. Okay. Uh, Apurva, pick one. Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey? Jack Dorsey. Okay. Uh, Michelle, the first movie that comes to your mind when I say the word ambition Man, maybe the McDonald's founder movie. I really liked that one. Oh, wow, I haven't seen that, but okay. Uh, Hero, back to you. When did you last cry and why? Oh my God. Um, honestly, I don't remember. Probably <laughs> 15 years ago and I, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago when, when I was last hit by my uh, my mom, likely. Um, I've been crying since. <laughs> okay. Apurva, the biggest mistake of your career? You know, I, I really, I don't feel like I've made any. And if I have, I don't know it yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, all right, back to Michelle. How do you relax? Hmm. Well, during normal times, I like to go to ballet classes. That's something I've done my whole life. But during quarantine, I switched over to yoga. Uh -huh. Okay, Hero. How many cups of coffee do you drink per day? On average, two. Okay. Apurva, a habit of yours that you really hate? Um, let's see. Um, tending to overeat when I'm celebrating something. <laughs> Same here. Okay, Michelle, the most valuable skill you've learned in life? I think Viruses has taught me just how to learn a lot of new things quickly. For example, in my role here, I do customer success. Basically, I had no experience in that before coming in, but I guess I've learned how to learn new skills and how to reach out to the right people to get advice on them. Okay. Uh, back to you, Hero. Fill in the blank. An upcoming marketing trend is blank. Um, a cookie-less future. <laughs> okay. 
And finally, Apurva, your favorite Netflix show. Ooh, I was a huge fan of the Karate Kid movie, so I enjoyed watching Cobra Kai. <laughs> okay. All right, that's the end of the rapid fire round. And you all scored 10 on 10. So <laughs> there's that. <laughs> and uh, it's time for the bigger questions now. The first question is, uh, how did viralspace.ai start? Uh, what has been the company's greatest success so far? Yeah, no, happy to share a quick Any, background. Anyone on, can uh, answer now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, happy to share a quick background on a company and then how we got started. Um, so it, basically, the, the three of us met at Stanford while we were completing our degrees. That's probably uh, one and a half to two years ago. Um, it, it, before Stanford, I was in Southeast Asia and, you know, kind of, I co-founded a, a group on equivalent in my home country. So have uh, a ton of digital marketing experience before coming to the Bay. Um, and then, you know, Apoorva was working at the forefront of, uh, computer vision, researching with professor Fei-Fei Li, the former chief scientist of AI and ML at Google. Um, you know, we both interned at Google one summer and decided to team up. Uh, Michelle, you know, on the other hand, had doubled in marketing and at companies like IDEO and, and Heiser Bush. Uh, she had a strong background in product design and joined us to kind of fill the gap in product and design thinking um, that we had. And fun fact, you know, Porva and I met over a spreadsheet and Michelle and I met over a LinkedIn cold message. And, you know, if we go all the way back, that's kind of how it started. Just, you know, three of us coming together um, and wanting to start something awesome in, in the space. Uh, and then early on, we just talked to a ton of digital marketers in the space. These are people like early angels and customer advisors at large brands and Fortune 500s. We, for example, have a founder of a WPP Accord agency backing us, and here's the insights we gather, right? So, you know, it sort of became the thesis of the company as well, um, and it is the fact that the number one factor that drives um, ad performance on digital platforms today is the creative, and, you know, more than half of a brand's sales lift from digital advertising can be attributed to creative, and this is according to Nielsen Catalina Solutions, yet, optimization, creative optimization today is done through a lot of guessing, checking, and A-B testing. And this process has not changed for decades. Um, and we're, we're here to change that. And our official one-liner is that we use AI to help digital marketers make data-driven decisions about their ad creative. Uh, to your question on, you know, what's the, um, I, I guess, you know, um, biggest achievement so far, uh, we're a really young company, you know, just really getting started in, uh, in you know, making a dent in the universe here. Uh, I would say the biggest achievement is likely closing a client called Textile Fashion Group, which is a, a huge client of ours that houses Kate Hudson and Rihanna's fashion brands. Um, and, you know, they they do a lot of assets. They, they spend a lot on, on on digital marketing. And when they found us, there was a great cultural fit. Um, and, you know, they're going to be a client for, um, uh, you know, for a pretty long time. So, yeah, there's, uh, there's that. Um, yeah, no, so, so that's kind of my response. Wow, so it seems pretty uh, apt that uh, the founders of an AI company met on a spreadsheet <laughs> in a Google internship. Is that what you said? A Google internship? Was that it? Yeah, no, we, or... we, uh, we uh, Purva, feel, feel free to add, add, add additional flavors here. But if I remember correctly, we met over the spreadsheet for a class project at Stanford. And then we internet Google, if I remember correctly. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. It was very Silicon Valley. And I think it was nice because, you know, on the spreadsheet, you kind of list what you're interested in and what your strengths are. So it was really nice to be able to, you know, it was an easy way to find um, people to speak to. That's nice. And and a lot of, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say, and then when you when you run out of, of names on, on the spreadsheet and you're, you're still looking, you, you go to LinkedIn and that's kind of how I found Michelle. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of our, our clients are actually marketers. And how do you go about marketing uh, to get companies like, you know, Rihanna's uh, production company that you're talking about, fashion production company and et cetera. How do you go about like creating enough marketing around wildspace.ai to get these kinds of clients and brands? Yep, happy to take a stab at this. Um, to be completely honest, we, uh, you know, we don't, I guess, you know, we do, we do a little bit of content marketing. We, um, uh, uh, unfortunately at this stage, um, do not have a sort of like a wide scale, uh, marketing, uh, sort of initiative, I think primarily because we are, uh, playing in the sort of premium enterprise space, um, where a lot of the leads are, I guess, uh, found through, you know, in-person interactions or, or nowadays, I guess, zoom interactions and very hyper targeted uh, clients um, that are coming through the funnel with very warm, you know, referrals from our clients, from our investors, and just us being at conferences, meeting people. I guess that's, that's one of the big things, you know, as just showing up at conferences and hopping on calls with people and, you know, qualifying clients and then just, you know, putting them uh, through the funnel. It almost didn't feel like they're going through a funnel. It almost feels like a, a strategic partnership every, um, every conversation. Um, uh, but yeah, Michelle, you want to, you want to add on, 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 you know, the marketing work that we've been doing. Yeah, absolutely. So in the early days, a lot of our clients really felt like advisors. So, you know, as you mentioned, we started off in this class project, we were students and we just wanted to learn more about the marketing space. So we reached out to, you know, connections that we had from Stanford, as well as just sent out a bunch of cold emails looking for advice. And luckily there were a bunch of really kind, really smart people in the marketing world that were willing to sit down with us and tell us about what they were looking for in a tool. And we basically built it exactly custom to them. Um, so a lot of our you know, early customers came in this very white glove, very personal advisory fashion. And although now, of course, we do more of your typical enterprise sales process, we really try to keep it white glove and personal in that same way. So yeah, just like Hiro said, it's, it's less of you know, broad-based marketing and a lot more of trying to form those really close personal connections. That sounds very promising, though, because that's exactly the kind of beginning outgrow my company had as well. In the beginning, it was mostly through referrals and, you know, meeting people and every prospect was actually just a whole universe in himself. So uh, that's pretty interesting. And I had another follow up question about this, but it's just gone off my mind. But I'll come back to that follow up question. I'm going to go to the next one, which is how important is data driven marketing, do you think, in today's age? Yeah, no, um, you know, look, the, the future, uh, it, well, it, 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 not very far from into the future, you know, we're going to be seeing AI writing ads um, without even realizing it. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to see ads on, on Facebook, on, on Google, they're entirely, or at least, you know, majority written by, by an AI with the, with the, with a human, maybe, you know, proofreading or, or just approving it. And, and that, that's one, right. And I think what do you, for a disruption as well in the, um, you know, sort of creative intelligence space. 
for the past decade, the past 10, 20 years has been about automation, has been about workflow. And it more recently has been about bid optimization and um, audience optimization. And all, all those things there, you know, like folks are tapping out, right? So, you know, they're pretty much optimized all they can with uh, Facebook having their own algorithms with some of the biggest players out there having solved uh, most of the automation problem, the templates, the, you know, the, the, the audience segmentation, the bits, but no one has really cracked the creative um, intelligence, uh, you know, side of things, the, the, other, the other half of the equation that adds, um, you know, they are driving ad performance, right? So, you know, if, if folks are being super data-driven with bits, with, with audience and with, the, with automation, it makes no sense that they're not being data-driven with their creative. And this is something that our clients are realizing in, you know, in the recent months, even I would say, you know, as, as they, as they head into a new era where cookies are going away um, and, you know, and, and computer vision and machine learning making leaps and bounds, but we know there are applications to digital ads yet. Uh, it is the, the space itself is heating up and our clients are, realizing that they need to be, you know, investing in this area. We've, we've got, for example, a, a, a quote from um, a managing director of, uh, of Ogilvy Social, a huge agency um, who's, who's one of our partners, um, literally, you know, just mentioning what I just told you, they are investing, you know, in, in, uh, in creative optimization because they believe that's where the most lift will come from. And they believe that that's the next frontier in digital advertising. And the world is increasingly a data-driven one, and to leave out, you know, something like an uh, AI-driven creative optimization is just a no-brainer. Yeah, and well, and just to add go on, ahead. oh, go ahead. Oh, no, you go ahead. That's fine. Awesome. Yeah, just to add on, like like Hero was saying, like right now the entire creative space, all of like so many creative decisions are being made on guesswork, and there's a lot of uncertainty of like why an ad actually performed well or why it performed poorly. So that's you know definitely something that we are working on um, building into the product. Like there is already a version of that um, incorporated, and you know making sure that whatever AI that we're building is explainable and it's transparent and it's fair and we're following all of the best practices is also super important to us in this space. So I was wondering though, so even though you're helping all these partners like Ogilvy that you mentioned, and I keep thinking of Rihanna's brand, so I'm going to keep mentioning this through the entire interview. Uh, uh, they're using data-driven marketing, like you're saying, but to what extent are you using data-driven marketing to market wirespace.ai itself or to what extent do you plan to use it in the future? Because right now you said you're getting most of your uh, client base through these very premium referrals, but at what point are you going to actually start using wirespace.ai for wirespace.ai? That is a really interesting question. I, I think one way we started to talk about was when COVID first started, uh, we realized that a lot of marketers budgets were hit hard and we couldn't go through our usual user acquisition channels. So we actually decided to create a bunch of free tools to help marketers with their advertising and helping them adapt it to COVID. So we scraped a bunch of organic social media, mostly across Instagram and Facebook. And we scraped across the Facebook ads library to pull trends um, 
in terms of how ads and the creative, the keywords, the uh, even some audience targeting factors were changing across the board in different industries. And that we launched across Product Hunt. We didn't actually run any of our own Facebook ads, but we launched in a bunch of different uh, other channels. And we got a lot of inbound interest that way. And we're sort of able to take what is usually super custom to our clients with our internal tool and make it more available to a broad audience. Does that answer your question? Kind of. <laughs> uh, I had uh, another question now that actually you mentioned Product Hunt, so my attention went in that direction i also well my show notes tell me that uh you have also founded other internet companies in the past uh how has that helped you build viralspace.ai and did you launch those companies on product hunt as well or those products uh as well um yeah no that's a great question we um we did not launch another company on product hunt we launched a covid dashboard um, on product hunt, basically, the, the, I guess the the product Michelle just just mentioned earlier. It's, it's mm -hmm. a free product that we had on our website. Um, what you might be referring to, um, you know, might be a a you know kind of a a pre pivot um, era of a viral space. You know, as I mentioned, we three of us we met at Stanford and we were working on several projects over at Stanford before, you know, I guess finally landing on this current version of um, of viral space, which is an, which is an AI. Um, you know, uh, engagement prediction software to help marketers make data-driven decisions. Um, but just to, I guess, before just diving deeper into this, uh, uh, just to clarify, do you meant the, the companies that I've I founded in the past or a previous iteration of viral space? Yeah, I mean, I, I did get Michelle's, uh, the COVID dashboard point that you launched on Product Hunt, but that got me thinking of the companies that you had launched in the past. So yeah, the companies you had launched in the past. Uh, if you could talk about those and how they actually helped you build viralspace.ai. Yeah, no, totally. I think uh, Michelle had a, had a past um, you know, a startup experience as well. But on my side, real, really quickly, um, I founded the Groupon equivalent of my home country, you know, maybe about, I don't know, eight years ago when I was in college. So um, it was it was group buying. So it was a lot of uh, people buying vouchers online for um, discounted stuff like massages and spas and et cetera. So, it was a brand building on its own, right? For uh, for, for for me and, and and the company that I started, um, and, and at that time, you know, Facebook was uh, was was still new and it was organic, and then paid social was new. So I kind of had the sort of firsthand experience of um, the transition from from organic to paid, and then just being able to uh, generate creative and and track the ads and put money behind. Um, uh, uh, the paid social uh, platforms like Google, well, Google Search as well, and Google Display, and also Facebook, and I think a lot of that um, experience have uh, have helped me, I guess, gain a better understanding and have have more of a user empathy and client empathy as well um, it, when we're building our product, when we're talking to our clients, when we're selling a product in terms of the pain point that we're solving, and I think that all kind of kind of adds up as well. And being, you know, sort of a second time founder um, also, I guess, makes the process a, a little bit less scary um, as, uh, as I've been through kind of the fundraising uh, piece and, and, you know, a little bit of, uh, of hiring and, and, you know, keeping the team um, uh, together as we go on this, you know, potentially decade long or decades long journey. So that's at least um, my, uh, the, the story on my side. How about the rest of you? Does it apply sure, to you so, as well? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so as Hiro mentioned, I had a little bit of startup experience, certainly not the decade-long career that he had, but I did a lot of very early-stage startup work when I was um, at Stanford. So I was part of the Entrepreneur in Residence program run by CX Ventures, which is the AB InBev uh, venture capital arm. And basically, they gave us a summer and 25K of funding to go prove out some kind of beverage idea that then if they liked it, they would incorporate it into uh, their existing uh, line of products. So that was just a very fun summer of going from absolutely nothing to, you know, going and talking to people on the street about health drinks, which was our space. and. Uh, learning how to brew beverages and create samples and test them out with people and even walk into bodegas and grocery stores completely cold and try to sell them on uh, ordering batches of our products. So I think I learned a lot very quickly about the early stages of coming up with a product idea and proving it out. Um, and I repeated that process a couple other times through just helping out some Stanford student startups. Um, I helped out a uh, startup that was in the Stanford D School Launchpad class with some design work early on. Um, I did some marketing and product management for another social media startup when I was uh, in my freshman year. So I dabbled in a lot of these things very early, never took it so much farther than those early stages until viral space. But I think just getting so many reps of building user empathy, building early prototypes really helps out in the early stages when we had to go through the same. Yeah, I, I think for me, I, I never uh, worked in a startup um, before Viral Space, so it was my first time, but I have been doing like side projects and stuff like Berkeley, where I did my undergrad, has a huge side project, project culture. So, you know, that really helps, especially when you're trying to put something together, put a prototype together um, when you're a very, very early stage startup. So um, I guess those kinds of skills helped me along the way. Okay, so what's uh, one piece of advice that all three of you coming from these kind of different parts and now working at Wildspace AI, what is the one piece of advice you would give to someone who is just starting up? I can go first here. I think for me, I've just learned that it's better to start and try to build something rather than wait for the perfect idea. You know, Stanford has this huge entrepreneurship culture pretty much everyone seems to want to someday start something, but I can't tell you how often I heard from my friends in undergrad that I'm just, you know, would love to start something, but I don't know what, and I'm waiting for the right idea. And for me, I mean, I'm very grateful that uh, I got to join forces with Hero and Apurva, and we just sort of started down this path of marketing. And I think as Hero briefly alluded to earlier, we actually were working on a totally different idea for a couple of months before we pivoted into this. So maybe our first idea wasn't 100% perfect, but the fact that we just got to start and we got out there, we met marketers, we met investors and just got to try our hand at the entrepreneurship process taught me so much more than just what would have happened if I kept sitting there and thinking of ideas in my notebook for hours. Um, so yeah, I would just say, <laughs> go try, um, especially if the stakes are low, like we luckily um, had when we were all at Stanford together. Yeah, I kind of agree with that philosophy because I think the more seriously one takes the startup game, the less of a result one would say. It's like you have to think of it as a game and just give it a try. Uh, how about the rest of you? What do you think? Actually, yeah. I was... Oh, go ahead, Euro. No, go ahead, Apova. I'll go last. Oh, gotcha. So, yeah, I actually was also thinking about, you know, just start as as my advice, but maybe I can take it just a step further. And I think you know, 
as a technical person, I am always eager to code and start building and, and all of this stuff. So something that I learned very early on is you should be starting with understanding the problem, understanding the customer, trying to figure out like, you know, prototyping and lo-fi uh, mock-ups or designs first to validate before getting into like actually building the product. I think that was definitely something that surprised me in the beginning because, you know, I my first instinct is just to code. So um, that really helped me out early on. Mm -hmm. And you, Hero? Yeah, I guess uh, for me, nothing beats hustle and hard work, right? So <laughs> the harder you work, I believe the luckier you get. And a lot of first time founders underestimate how much they can do with um, very little resources, very little to no funding um, even. But, you know, once folks start rolling up their sleeves and, and, you know, hustle and work hard, they start realizing that, hey, you know, with the right strategy, you can really accomplish a great deal, um, you know, you, even before you raise a round or something like that. And um, I think that's just, just one thing that I continue to um, uh, practice and, and also pe uh, preach uh, as an advice. That's interesting, though, because I would assume uh, hustle and hard work are kind of contradictory to each other because hustle is kind of a shortcut, whereas hard work is like, you know, as uh, Michelle was saying at one point, uh, it's like you think of a perfect idea and you're trying to realize that perfect idea, whereas a hustle is more like, you know, you you go around and try to take the shortcut to the perfect idea. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, that? <laughs> it's, it's definitely, it's definitely tricky, right? So I guess, you know, everything is, is, is a balance, right? So you, at the same time, you, you want to work really smart, uh, but, you know, you also really don't want to slack off and you really want to be out there. And I think an example is, it's just, you know, me being at conferences, you know, the more I show up, it's, it's really 80% is all about showing up and meeting those clients and the luckier I get with the, with the clients. But I also need to know where I should be showing up and, and not showing up at all the conferences, right? So I think that's kind of how I think about um, hustle and hard work um, working in, uh, in tandem and just balancing them. Okay, did the, uh, I had two questions here. A, does anyone else have anything else uh, to say about hustle and hard work? And B, how are you meeting people now? Because because of the virus, there are no conferences. I think, you know, I think something that goes along with hustle and hard work is like working smart. Like, there are always going to be a ton of different ways to do something. And sometimes it's just a matter of figuring out, like, is it time to do like this really heavy lift hard solution? Or can we do this other thing and see and like, you know, based on, you know, X, Y, Z, we can do this other thing. Like, I think, you know, it's, it's very black and white and just making smart decisions um, really helps along the way, just thinking them through. A hundred percent. So in our product management processes, we've had to really learn how to prioritize things and even sometimes say no to things. I think in our early days, you know, we were just eager to please our clients. So they would send us an email with our requests and we would drop everything to answer immediately, get the request turned around in an hour. And while that was awesome, we eventually learned that that was really derailing a lot of our initial roadmaps. So we've, we've learned, I think, to sort of understand better what is important to do first, how to prioritize things, and like Apurva said, just work uh, smarter as well as still working hard. Sounds good. And about yeah. the conferences thing, how's how are you guys handling that? No, totally. Yeah, you know, twelve months ago, if you asked me, I would tell you, <laughs> hey, we, we we bought we bought some tickets to New York and you know maybe LA to attend some conferences. 
but obviously none of that happened because of COVID. And now all the all the events and summits and conferences that have gone online, you know, we're just we're just there, we're just online. And I and I think you know it's a, it's a new world. It's it's interesting. We've been meeting, I guess, majority of our clients, all the clients that we've uh, we've, we've signed since COVID. We've never met them in person, um, and it just I guess it just goes to show. Um, you know how, how like what the world will look like um over the over the next um next couple of years or even decades and what it looks like to be selling a SaaS uh, product to uh to uh to brands out there and it can completely be done online hmm. have you not experienced because like this is my personal experience especially with like being a podcast host and also working in a SaaS tool i've noticed a lot of digital fatigue because of corona like you know the last thing i want to do in my free time is attend a webinar because i don't want to like i want to like do yoga like michelle was saying it's a way of relaxing i'm going to disconnect from the uh, virtual space so have you noticed that this has had any effect on the pitches that you're making for your software yeah no totally um you know uh, folks are getting a ton more inbounds a ton more emails and you know we are doing a ton more as well you know as, as we as we get more time back at, uh, from commute and and all but I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's really about cutting through the noise. And we've heard just repeatedly from, you know, our marquee clients about what's special about us, what they're not, you know, seeing in the market and why they responded to us. And for us, it's really about honing in on, on those and refining our pitch um, so that, you know, we get better over time and, and we get more targeted. We, we get more on point with the, with the messages and LinkedIn messages and emails that we're, we're sending. And also the conferences we're attending, I think it's, it's in this in this new world. It's all it's all about focus. It's all about you know uh, hyper targeting and you know bringing the solutions to to the right people. Uh, and above all, I think just sticking out like a sore thumb and, and standing out in the market, I think uh, definitely helps. I also think there's two ways in which we're really lucky here. One is that we've always been a partially remote company, so we always did a couple days per week working from home and. With a lot of our clients, you know, we met them originally online even before COVID hit. So in a way, it's kind of leveled the playing field for us. We've had experience just building strong work from home culture, um, as well as, of course, you know, we do miss coming into the office. But I think we had a little bit of a leg up there from, from day one. And the other thing is um, when you're selling in uh, the digital ad space, COVID has actually been really interesting for us because e-commerce is bigger than ever. People are spending more on digital ads, especially Facebook and Instagram ads are specialty more than ever too. So I think there's actually a lot of appetite right now for you know tools like viral space, creative optimization um, due to this you know always online culture. So some advantages there as well. For sure, that makes sense. Related to that, I had a question. What do you think marketers are doing wrong when it comes to all this data? And I guess now there's a lot of data available because a lot of things have moved online because of COVID that weren't online before. So what do you think marketers are doing wrong when it comes to data? I, I can take a first stab at this one. So I think one thing is that there's just, so, like you mentioned, there's so much data available. It's actually hard to figure out how how best to parse through it and actually make sense of it. Um, you know, there's there's so much potential around it. And um, like Hero was mentioning earlier, there's, you know, right now, it's, a lot of it has just been metadata related. And then the other thing is, I think the computer vision or AI talent, there's a huge shortage of it still. And so, 
even though companies might have all of this media and creative data, they don't actually have the means of analyzing it at like an image or video level yet. So I think, you know, using tools like what we're building and making it more accessible for companies to be able to get those kinds of insights would be a great, you know, next step to actually unlocking that creative potential that there is. Yeah, we actually hear this all the time when we're pitching to new clients, you know, they've been running ads for years and they have not been able to sit down and make sense of all the data. It's kind of just untapped uh, amazing data that right now they're able to pull little things, you know, we'll see in reports, oh, okay, our best ad was this and we think it might be because of these factors or in general videos that, you know, were shorter tended to do videos that uh, better than videos that were longer because we tracked that one single factor, but it's really hard to do that at scale. And fortunately, not every company can have a, someone as amazing as a poor belly, like she said. Okay, Hero, do you want to answer that as well? Uh, no, I think uh, uh, Michelle Porva covered it uh, pretty well. And I think, you know, uh, I guess in addition to that, uh, a lot of brands are just not doing anything with the data. I mean, they're doing it for. <laughs> for the other optimization purposes. But like I mentioned earlier, if you're not doing it for creative, uh, it's, it's as good as just data sitting there. It's, a, it's like, it's, it's a gold mine just sitting there waiting to be mined. <laughs> okay. And we are approaching the end of the interview. So I have to ask this question because I think it won't make sense. Uh, a token privacy question. So especially because it's an AI company. So what privacy concerns around data use uh, uh, no, with privacy concerns around data use, what do you think lies ahead for businesses providing personalized solutions? Uh, who wants to take a stab at this one? Yeah, I, I, I can take a first stab at this. So, you know, right now we're using all of this first party data and it's all things that, you know, Facebook provides us. So it's not identifiable. And even if we do get any data around gender or, um, you know, audience groups and stuff, we actually consciously have made the decision as a company not to go into that space and, um, you know, work, work with building models based on like gender, race, uh, sexuality. So, you know, although we explicitly do um, remove all of that kind of information, you know, there are still uh, ways that bias and fairness and, and privacy can creep in. So we always have a human in the loop as well to make sure that what our models are outputting, it it's, you know, working well for everyone and, and it's as fair as possible. And, you know, I think as with any AI company, there is still a lot to be done in this space. So, you know, we're constantly looking for ways to make sure that we're, uh, you know, being as fair and as transparent as possible. Yeah, and we don't really see any private individual user data. What we get from Facebook, uh, from the API is basically the ad image, the text, whatever other creative factors, and then the KPI that goes with it. So we're not seeing individual user behavior. And, you know, as long as Facebook continues to be able to provide rich KPIs as they do, none of that should really um, affect us. Okay. Uh, I, the, the human in the loop phrase just actually took me back to the two humans on a spreadsheet phase, uh, phrase that you mentioned earlier. And from that, I actually have a bonus question from all, for all of you, which is, uh, what would you be doing if you had not met on that spreadsheet? Uh, like, 
and if not this, if not wildspace.ai, what would you all be doing uh, right now? I would probably be doing uh, product marketing or uh, a role that sounds like that in a big tech company or a um, or or a late stage startup. That was what I was planning on when I was uh, completing my degree at Stanford. But you know, startup bug um, bit me, and I met the the dream team here. Yeah, and I'd probably be doing either product design or product management at a tech company looking to build my skills and prepare myself for a startup someday. But yeah, luckily got to skip that step. Yeah, I think similar to what these guys said, um, I would also probably be probably be working at a at a big tech company. I, I actually didn't end up recruiting at all in the um, my last uh, year at Stanford because you know, viral, you know, I knew I was going to do viral space after I graduated. So luckily, I didn't have to do that. Oh, brilliant. I was actually gonna probably do filmmaking if I wasn't in my tech company. But <laughs> that's a different story. Okay, I think uh, that's the end of the interview. Thanks everyone for joining us for this month's episode of Outgrows Market of the Month. That was Hero Tien, Apurva Dornadula, and Michelle Liu, who are the co-founders at wildspace.ai. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Do check out, Thank you. Do check out the website for more details, and we'll see you once again next month with another Market of the Month. Thank you.